Well, we continue through our journey through First and Second Thessalonians with the theme uh, that living in the light of His return, and uh, probably uh, more than than the rest of the entire letter today, we're going to actually pick up exactly on that theme. You know, the return of Jesus Christ and the day of the Lord and what that looks like. And one of the things we want to do is instill with you the, the truth uh, of Scripture and our understanding of doctrine and uh, the traditions which we hold to, which we think are uh, biblical traditions and supported by biblical traditions. Sometimes, though, we also have to kind of expose error uh, that we see even within the evangelical community. Not everything is one of those things that we would break fellowship over, uh, but there are things that we need to point out and re- regarding to the return of Christ, probably one of the more confusing areas uh, within the church. Uh, that we will point out from time to time. And uh, one such thing uh, was, as I was doing the preparation for this week's sermon, I came across this uh, website uh, called The Rapture Index. Uh, and it's a website that describes itself as the Dow Jones Industrial Average, Average of End Time Activity. Uh, and it's a prophetic speedometer. The higher the number, the faster we're moving towards the occurrence of pre-tribulation Rapture, And what this website does is it looks about uh, economics going on, civil unrest, crime, war, those kind of thing. And then they add a, a number value. And when I checked the website earlier this week, we were at a rapture index of 187. Uh, and that's com- to be compared with the uh, all-time high of 189 in October of 2016. So we're just short of the all-time high of that rapture. Uh, So is the rapture near? We have no idea. We have no idea. And Scripture teaches us that it doesn't matter whether it's near or not. Is the rapture important? Absolutely, yes. It is very important. And because of the truths of Holy Scripture that we're going to look at, one of the many truths we're going to look at today, uh, we want to be those who are living in the light of his return. But when it happens, is just frankly none of our business. And Jesus and the apostles told us that. So as we mind the depths of our scriptural passage today in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 4, my hope is that we are going to be devoted to living in the light of his return and awaiting the coming of the Lord on the day of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do turn to you right now. We understand that our authority is Holy Scripture. And we thank you, God, for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that applies that Holy Scripture to us. We thank you, God, that you are a God of truth, that you cannot lie, that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh and that he cannot lie, and that you inspired prophets and prophets Uh, prophets and apostles uh, to give us this written word of God that does not lie. So in faith, we turn to you today and we ask God that you would bring alive, make alive this wonderful passage of scripture and help us to be excited about the return of Christ and to live a life uh, that when you come back and we see you face to face, whether that's the return to planet earth or our ultimate death, that we would not need to be ashamed that we would hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. That is the groaning desire of every believer. So bless us now, we pray. In faith, we turn to you and ask that you would show us truth in your holy word and help us to be prepared for the day of the Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please do turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Again, we like when you 
Look at the Bible during, uh, during these teaching times. When you look at it on your phone, just make sure you're actually looking at the Bible on your phone. Uh, when you open up the Bible, the pew Bible's in front of you, we want you to check to make sure what is being taught here is accurate and is, and is true uh, based on Holy Scripture. And we're going to begin looking at this passage. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 4. I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then we'll break it down into four different sections for you this morning. Hear now the word of the Lord. God says, the Apostle Paul writes, Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. As we break down these uh, four uh, short verses here, we're going to look at four different uh, areas, and you'll see this on your home group helps insert. It might be helpful to you to be able to follow along with us. Also, on the other side of the outline are some maybe some reflective questions you can use in home group or in your daily devotions as well. Uh, But we're going to see the timing of the day of the Lord in verse 1, the suddenness of the day of the Lord in verses 2 through 3a, the destruction of the day of the Lord in 3b, and then the preparation for the day of the Lord in verse 4. First of all, he notices here, he says here, now as to time and epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. The time and epic out there is, relates to the length of time and the sequence of events. Uh, the Thessalonians, again, Paul planted that church, but then he got run out of town basically due to persecution. And he kind of, in a sense, didn't complete some of the lessons that he wanted to complete, perhaps, uh, on the return of Jesus Christ. But the Thessalonians were very, very interested on when Jesus is going to come back. And they wanted to make sure that they were ready. They had had some saints die and they were confused about what happens to dead saints. If Jesus comes back, what's going to happen with them? So Paul is responding to some of their questions. Evidently, Timothy came back with a report about some of the things that were going on here. And Paul says, you have no need to write anything to you. And then he proceeds to go and write a bunch to them because he just can't help himself. He's so excited about this idea. Now, Paul, unlike us, has actually seen Jesus Christ. He's actually had conversations with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ converted him on the road to Damascus. Jesus Christ, we have several instances recorded in Scripture where Jesus Christ appeared to him and everything. He wants that for the rest of us. And it's coming. We just don't know when. So he's trying to explain in a lot of ways what the day of the Lord is. With, and, and trying to distract or discourage people from being consumed of when of the day of the Lord is coming. John Stott's comments that they thought they could most easily get ready for Christ's coming and judgment if they knew when he would arrive. Now, we understand that, right? We just finished with the holidays. And those of you who have adult sons, you were probably texting them, just wondering when you're coming home for Christmas. And the answer was probably December. <laughs> you know, you know, you kind of like to narrow that down a little bit more, right? Well, that's kind of, so you could, their heart is right. But they're kind of missing the point here. And, and too many times people miss the point. This rapture index misses the point in so many ways. And matter of fact, whole denominations have been started because they've missed the point of the day of the Lord. In 1833, William Miller published a, uh, uh, his belief that Christ would return in 1843, and when that year passed, the date was reset for April 18th, 1844, and then again when he didn't return on October 22nd, 
1844. And my understanding of these events, when Dreis didn't come back, William said, go back to your other churches. He's not coming back. I was wrong. But a prophetess, Ellen White, decided that, no, he probably did come back. We just didn't see it. That's kind of like going to a restaurant, buying a meal and said, I did pay for that meal. You just didn't get the money. And there was this great disappointment of depression that Jesus Christ didn't come back. But out of that spawned the Seventh-day Adventists, an entire denomination dedicated to when Christ is coming back. Looking at all those numbers and then studying the book of Daniel for years and years and years, trying to figure out when Christ is coming back. When Jesus said, don't worry about it. It's not for you to know these things. And as Paul says, it's not for us to know times uh, and epics. But in the end, uh, whether, uh, uh, whether Christ comes back to us or we die and go to him, it's all the same, right? You want to prepare for your death meeting him? You want to prepare for his return if he comes back in our lifetime? So in a, in, in a sense, it doesn't really matter, does it, when he comes back? But we just have this kind of drama about us that wants to write whole book series about the return of Christ because we don't want to be left behind. Right. So while he says there's no need to write anything, he goes on to write this enormous amount of uh, literature for us. So he speaks now about the suddenness of the day of the Lord on verse two through uh, 3a. He says here, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night while they are saying peace and safety. So, again, he is just reaffirming the knowledge that they've already had here. Uh, nevertheless, they're still struggling with the priorities of things and, and uh, trying to figure out how to deal with this during the midst of their difficulties. But he introduces this concept here, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Now, if you're a student of Scripture, that's not a new concept for you because you often see that, that term in the Old Testament. Uh, and in the Old Testament, it was a, it was a, a day of the Lord that was... Uh, that was mentioned by the prophets as a source of encouragement that Israel, who was heavily persecuted very often, oppressed by foreign nations, uh, uh, often persecuted for worshiping one God instead of multiple gods, it was the day that God was going to come back and set everything right. He was going to perform justice. He was going to vindicate Israel. He was going to punish the nations. He was going to punish all this paganism and all this uh, human sacrifice and things like that. And they longed for that, just like we long for that. Christians love truth. Christians love justice. And we look in a world that is filled with untruth and injustice and even in the church. And even in the church. And we long for the day where everything will be set right. Where we dwell in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Amos brought up the theme in Amos chapter 5. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, what, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be of darkness and not light. When a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him or goes home, leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it at all? Ezekiel chapter 30 says, the day of the Lord is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. It is the day of clouds, a time of doom of the nations. And now while it brings down judgment upon the nations, those people that are outside forces, it is also something that should be feared by the religious hypocrites as well. Probably in terms of in the times of Jesus speaking, the people that should have been most fearful of the day of the Lord were the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes. They thought, they were gonna, they thought God was obligated to save them because they were so moral. And Jesus says, no, 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 the prostitutes and the tax gatherers are getting to heaven before you. 
because they realize they're sinners and they realize they need grace and they realize they need mercy. You think you've earned your way to heaven. And the day of the Lord's going to come upon you for that as well. Paul will go on in 2 Thessalonians. We'll probably get this sometime in February or, <clears throat> or March. But he goes on in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians to describe this. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Again, they were personally being uh, persecuted in Thessalonians. So they, they take personal comfort in this. And to give relief to you who are afflicted. And to us as well. When the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who believe, our testimony for you has believed. The return of, the, of Christ is the same thing as the day of the Lord, and it's anything but secret. It is a public event. As we looked at last Sunday, there's the shout of the Lord. There's the voice of the archangel. There's the blowing of the trumpet. It's all going to happen. And those who are loved are going to meet Christ in the air. They're going to come back down with those who have died and be, be rejoined with their resurrected body. And the day of the judgment of, of nonbelievers is going to occur at that same time. Maybe not the same instant, but at that same time. That's what the day of the Lord means. But it's interesting, uh, too, uh, again, looking at doctrine. You know, we have been uh, those who hold to scriptural proofs uh, and stand up for those scriptural proofs. Uh, uh, in their churches are often considered narrow-minded and bigoted and they're making things up and unloving and that kind of thing. I was telling someone before the service, in some ways this church is sort of a, a, a church of refugees who have fled once great denominations uh, because they stood up for the truth and they saw what was going on within those denominations. The, the denomination that I was raised in has become completely apostate now. Completely apostate. But one of the things that we need to understand here is that a lot of times people criticize Christianity. They say, oh, you know, this idea that Jesus was God, that the, that the son of God was equal to God. You know, that's that's something that came up later on, that the Jesus didn't teach that and the apostles didn't teach it. Here's one of those instances where they're just wrong. Jesus Christ is equal to God, the father in terms of his power and his and, and everything else. And notice what it is here, because Paul is using this phrase, the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, that was written the day of Yahweh, the day of Yahweh. Now, Jews became uncomfortable using the name Yahweh. They afraid they were going to uh, use the name of the Lord in vain. So they changed that to Adonai, Lord, so in, the, in the Septuagint. So it became the day of the Lord, but it was always referring to Yahweh. Paul takes that same term. And, uh, and this was not probably, this was written maybe 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul gives what used to be the day of Yahweh to Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord. And he always uses this term. So here's, here's great Christology here. Here's teaching on the divinity of Jesus Christ. This didn't come up in the third century when Christians were desperate to fill church seats. Okay, This is truth here. This is one of these things you can point to, the people who deny uh, the deity of Jesus Christ. It's sort of a side theological note. But this, this idea of the day of, of the Lord for the Christian is a joyful deliverance. It's vindication. It's salvation for God's uh, people here. But for those who do not know the Lord, it's unspeakable dread and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and a terrifying prospect. Or it should be a terrifying prospect. And what does Paul say? He's telling you how it does come. It comes actually like a thief in the night. Now, thieves do not announce the fact that they're going to rob you, right? 
You don't get a text. Hey, this is Bill Smith. I noticed, uh, you know, my, my suspicion is you got some nice silverware and probably a few guns there. And what I'd like for you to do, if you don't mind, maybe putting the, the dog in a pen and just turning up the white noise in your bedroom a whole lot. I'm going to come by about 2.30. You, know, you just don't get that, right? You don't get that. That's the whole point of being a thief. You're stealthy. You sneak in. You break in. Uh, and uh, that's the way the day of the Lord is. It's, it's not going to come when we think it's going to. Regardless of what the Dow Jones Industrial Average of the rapture says is going to happen. We don't know when this, idea, when this is going to happen. Now, again, Paul is not, uh, Paul is not making this up here. Uh, but he has no intention of revealing when Christ is going to return here. Mark 13 says this, heaven and earth, this is Jesus speaking, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. Again, emphasizing the importance of the Bible, the word of God. <clears throat> but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert. You do not know when the appointed time is. So if Jesus himself, during his earthly ministry, didn't know when he was coming back, why in the world would Miller or White know exactly when Jesus was going to come back down to the specific day? Well, they don't, and they were wrong, right? Similar to the statement of Jesus, uh, in this statement of Jesus, Matthew 24, he says this, but sure, be sure of this, if the head of the house had known what time the thief would come, he would, not, he would be on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you, you too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. Peter picks up on this idea of a thief as well, 2 Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And one reason why we don't know the time is you can't guess what's time because what's going to be happening at that time is people are going to be saying peace and safety, peace and safety. Matter of fact, Paul seems to be picking up on an idea that was sort of a political slogan for the Roman Empire at the time, uh, that there is peace and there is security. If you've studied the, 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 uh, the Roman Empire, you know, one of the things they were very proud of was Pax Roma, Roman peace. Uh, and uh, among uh, also their, their highway system, clearing the Mediterranean Sea of pirates, their communication system, the fact that everybody spoke Koine Greek, all those things assisted the growth, the incredible growth of the, of the first century church. But Pax Roma came at the point of a spear. <laughs> you know, you got along with Rome or you died, you know, basically. But so while they're saying peace and safety, even under that, there is this, there is this idea of conquest and, and slavery and that kind of thing. But peace and safety is what the people who deny the return of Jesus Christ are often saying at the time. Jeremiah is a classic example. You remember the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet? Jeremiah was really probably the only speak, truth-speaking prophet at his time. He may have been one of the only believers at the time. The Israel had become so apostate at that point in time, he just sort of stood alone and he was exhausted by it, but the Lord used him in so many ways. Jeremiah chapter 6 gives you something that he said here. He said here, And their houses, speaking against Israel, speaking against Jerusalem, their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields and their wives together. For I stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord, from the least of them even to the greatest of them, everyone greedy for gain. And from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. And they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, 
This is where Paul got the idea, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. While they, are, uh, 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 they were ashamed because of the abomination they have done, they were not even ashamed of it at all. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fail, fall among those who fail. At that time, I will punish them, and they shall cast down, says the Lord. What happens here, what happened in Israel at the time, according to Jeremiah, seems to be the searing of people's conscience. And is that not the same thing that's happening in our culture right now? I was reading one, uh, one book the other day. It said this, grandmothers, your grandmothers sinned in secret and felt shame. Your mother sinned openly and felt some shame. But children sin openly and feel no shame. The things that are paraded before us right now, it seems to be that we have a culture that forgot how to blush. Similar to the culture that Jeremiah uh, preached to. Now, what happened? Jeremiah said, oh, no, you're going to be destroyed. In the midst of all this prosperity, in the midst of all this uh, safety and peace, you're going to be destroyed. 586, the Babylonians came to and raised Jerusalem to the foundation destroyed the temple, took the people off into slavery. They weren't laughing at Jeremiah after that. Well, the Apostle Paul is saying the same thing. The, cult, the culture at the time is going to be saying peace and safety. We have got it together. Don't worry about anything. Who's this Jesus anyway? All he wants to do is destroy our fun. Why would we want to welcome this guy back? Matthew 24 says this, The angels of heaven, nor the Son of God, but the Father alone, uh, for the coming of the Lord will be just like the days of Noah. For as the days which were before the flood, where people were eating and drinking or marrying and giving in marriage until the day of Noah entered the ark, they did not understand until the flood came and looked um, and, and took them all away. So shall the son of man be. In other words, now, but he, now Paul, uh, Paul, Jesus is not attacking eating and drinking. He's not attacking marriage and giving marriage. Those things are all perfectly lawful things. His point is they are distracted. They're consumed with the events of this time and the things of this world, and they're, not, they're looking all around horizontally. They're not looking up vertically. And when the day of the Lord comes, it's going to be like the day of Noah. People are going to be in shock just like they were when those first raindrops came. Now, that's weird. And then why is the guy in the boat with all those animals and the doors shut? Yeah. That's what Jesus is comparing us to. Now, this is important because this is, this is one of these driving forces for Christianity. Uh, Christians, we understand that we, that we live our lives, quorum Deo, before the face of God. Now, most people, people in general know this. You know, people were even the, the non-Christian, the non-believer, even the so-called atheist. He was designed for worship. And his conscience tells him there's going to be some accountability here. But Christians are taught this in the Scripture, and the Holy Spirit tells us that, that, that our life matters. And how we live our life is going to matter. It's, and, and in a sense, we will be held accountable uh, for doing that here. But that's not the case for the, the culture in general. And one of the reasons why is because Darwinism has taken over as the primary thought uh, that, that has sub, uh, sub replaced, uh, sub, uh, uh, supplanted uh, the idea of Christianity, which was the original uh, kind of worldview that our country was founded on. William Johnson points out the attitude in his, uh, his landmark book, Darwin on Trial, that came out, my goodness, probably 25 years ago. Uh, he's, he's quoting uh, evolutionary pa uh, paleontologist George Gaylord Simpson 
Doesn't that sound like an evolutionary paleontologist? George Gaylord Simpson. Uh, George Gaylord Simpson says this, man is the result of purposelessness and the natural process that did not have him in mind. If you're just a cosmic accident, Jesus is never coming back. You just devote your life to eating and drinking and marriage and giving in marriage or anything. There's no accountability here. You're just an animal. When you die, you have no soul. Do you know the unspeakable evils that have happened in the last century because of the embracing of that worldview compared to the worldview that I've got to live my life in a way that matters because the Lord's coming back. The Lord is coming back. Isaiah, of course, rebukes George Gaylord Simpson and those who embrace what he teaches in Isaiah 46. God says this, remember the former things long past, for I am God. There is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east and, uh, and uh, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn-minded who are far from righteousness. Near, uh, uh, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. My salvation will not delay. I will grant salvation to Zion and my glory for Israel. God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. Now that ought to comfort you. The good, the bad, and the ugly that come into your life come in through the hand of God. So does God care about all these things that are going on? God cares about when a sparrow flies to the ground. God has numbered the hairs on your head. We, that's, that, that concept is so overwhelming for us, we can't even grasp it. We cannot grasp that kind of intelligence, that kind of power, that kind of omnipresence. And yet that's there. That's there. So does God care how you live your life? He absolutely does. And this should be a motivator for us to live our life in the light of his return. But it takes eyes of faith to see God's promises and to believe them. Unbelievers don't have the eyes of faith. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They, they kind of, they, these sort of things frighten them, so they tend to dismiss them. And the result is the thief will come in the night and take away everything they hold dear. And that's really what the warning is. We see here the destruction on the day of the Lord in 3b. The destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape here. Now, this idea of destruction does not refer to annihilation, as some have said that it does. It's really a separation from God. It doesn't mean the destruction of being, but of well-being. And as one commentator says, it's not the end of existence, but the destruction of the purpose of existence. Okay? But notice this, it's then the destruction will come upon them. He is not talking about believers. You've got, when you read scripture, you have to discern when the audience are believers and when the audience are non-believers. And Paul writes his letters to the church of Thessalonica. So he will differentiate the things that apply to a believer and the things that don't apply to the believer. And this destruction does not apply to the believer. He will go on and opening up in 2 Thessalonians 1, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he becomes become to be glorified in the saints on that day and be marveled at among all who have believed. So what does this destruction look like? Well, part of it you can see in the opening of the sixth seal on Revelation chapter 6. 
And I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made with hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split, split apart like a scroll when it was rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of its place. And the things of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come. And who will be able to stand. This is very sobering stuff, isn't it? It's very sobering stuff. And I'll be honest with you, just point of personal confession. You know, Jonathan Edwards is most known for what sermon, right? The sinners in the hands of the angry God, you know? But Jonathan Edwards much preferred to preach on grace. Uh, not that I compare myself to Jonathan Edwards, uh, but I would much rather preach on grace. Much rather preach on grace. But folks, this is true. The Lord is coming back. And with Revelation is filled with figurative language. Will the stars really fall from the sky? I don't know. But this is bad. Okay. On that day, you're probably not going to decide, this is a good day for a garage sale. Let's just set everything up outside. This is bad. This is bad. But not for the believer. Not for the believer. Because God's wrath is not going to be upon those who've already had their sin forgiven through Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, it's suddenly like a birth pain here. Basically, if a woman, like, okay, I read a book on this. I've never experienced this. But when, you, when those birth pangs are coming, that baby's coming, right? Okay, we've had some ladies here that they've gone through like two minutes of labor. We've had others that have gone through two days of labor. But the pangs tell you the baby's coming, right? So there are going to be things that the pangs are telling us the baby has come. But that baby will come. Christ will come back. You don't know what's going to be two minutes. You don't know what's going to be two days. But he will come. And what does he say here? They shall not escape. There is no second chance. When the day of the Lord comes, you can't get together then and say, I wish I had listened to my grandmother. I sure wish I had simulcast church. <laughs> I wish I had decided to go to that Bible study. It's too late. It's too late. There's no salvation once the Lord comes back and reestablishes his kingdom on earth. Then heaven and earth are together and the events of judgment all happen at this point in time. He says here, they shall not escape. There's, there's a completeness that's emphasized here. Now, I need to point this out too. This text, these texts have been used to kind of beat people up and terrify them. And there may be some of you are thinking that, boy, I need to become more moral. I, I need to become a, a, a better person. That, that really is not the point because that's not the point of salvation. You don't become a Christian by being more moral. I mean, these kind of texts, how many of y'all are scarred from your, the youth retreats that you went to when you were a kid and some pastor got up there, Jesus is coming back and you better not be smoking one of them cigarettes when he is, you know? And you think, oh, I need to be a better person. Hell is filled with people who are better than you. They just weren't Christians. Their sins weren't forgiven. And very often, they were, their betterness was that, that, that was they thought obligated God to save them because they were such wonderful people. So, who can look forward to the return of Christ and who should be terrified of the return of Christ and therefore convert so they can become looked forward to? Well, John 3.36 tells us. 
Everybody loves John 3.16, right? We all love John 3.16. Keep going to John 3.36, right? John says this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Christians have a reason to look forward to the return of Christ. Non-Christians have a reason to dread the return of Christ. What's the solution? Become a Christian. Become a Christian. Don't just decide you're going to go to Rotary more often. You're going you're to break your leaves that have been sitting there since October. You're going to adopt a rescue animal. You're going to send some money to a place in Africa. You, though, though all those things might be good, you really do need to rake your leaves. I got some neighbors that had raked their leaves since October. But that's not what saves you. What saves you is Jesus Christ, is the grace of God. And if you are saved, you'll understand that. And then you see the preparation for the day of the Lord. I love this, uh, the, the, the reference that Paul makes here. He's, he, he's making sure they understand that they are going to be saved. In verse 4, he says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. He's intentionally trying not to scare them. He's intentionally trying to give them something to look forward to. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. Peter does something similar in 1 Peter 2. But you, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Again, he's writing to Christians here. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. Isn't that interesting? Peter is writing to Gentiles. And, and he's basically, you were raised in a dark land. You worshipped Zeus. You sacrificed animals to Apollo. Uh, you, uh, and paganism has, the, has the, the, the culture of paganism. Putting baby girls on the street, going to the arena and watching people kill each other for your, your entertainment. Peter says, those days are over. Those days are over. You were darkness, but now you're light. You are not the people of God. Now you're the people of God. You see the power of grace? Do you see the power of what the cross of Jesus Christ did? By the way, I'm looking at a lot of white folks out there. A lot of Europeans. Those were your ancestors. Those were your ancestors. At the time that uh, Socrates uh, was... was, um, writing and philosophizing in Athens, my ancestors were committing human sacrifices to the spirits of the forests. So were a lot of yours. Could there be anything darker than that? Killing a baby so that the spirit of the forest, under a sacred oak tree so that the spirit of the forest won't hurt you or will improve your crops? We've gotten so used to lifting a culture that has been affected by Christianity that we forget what true darkness is like. But again, all you got to do is turn on the television and see what it's like now. It was said in John, the prologue to John, that he came to his own and his home did not, his own did not receive him. They chose to stay in darkness and they ended up killing their own Messiah. John goes on to say, you know, this idea of light and darkness is a favorite theme of uh, John as well as Paul. He goes on to say in 1 John 1, and this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. 
And we say that if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And Paul says he does not want the day to, the day to overcome us like a thief. Again, the motivation here is that you live your life in accordance with this truth, this marvelous truth. Jesus again taught in Luke chapter 12, and be sure of this, if the head of the house had known the hour was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too, here's the command from Jesus, you too be ready for the Son of Man is coming as an hour, but it is not when you expect. We are not to be overwhelmed. We're to be, we're to be preppers. Probably shouldn't use that illustration. We should be prepared. For the return of Jesus Christ. Mark 13 says this, gives this challenge. It is like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slave in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert. You do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or midnight or cock crowing or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert, be on the alert, not in fear, but in joyful anticipation. The Jesus that you worship now, that you love now, you will see face to face in all of his glory. When he was on earth, he was tried as a criminal and tortured to death. When he comes back, he is coming back as God Almighty to bring an end to human history as we know it. So if you are ready, if you take this as, a, as, as a, an encouragement from the Lord, obviously we, we want to see other people saved, right? We have loved ones that we don't want to be unprepared. But in terms of the personal effect on you, the return of Jesus Christ, it should bring you great joy. What does that look like? What does that look like? Well, give me an example in history. In 1899, Dwight Moody, who is considered probably the greatest evangelist in American history, he had been sick for some time and he was in his deathbed and kind of going in and out of consciousness at this point in time. But on his last morning, his son heard him explain, earth is receding, heaven is open, God is calling. The son said, you're dreaming, father. Uh, and Moody replied, no, Will, this is no dream. I have been within the gates. I have seen the children's faces. Moody seemed to revive, but then started to slip away again. Is this death? He was heard to say. This is not bad. There is no valley. This is bliss. This is glorious. By now his daughter had come and she began to pray that he would recover. And he stopped. He said, no, 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 Emma. He said, don't pray for that. God is calling. This is my coronation day. I have been looking forward to it. Movie then died in his funeral. All of Chicago celebrated at his funeral and they sang praise to God Proclaiming the truth of 1 Corinthians 15. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Your sting? I want to die like D.L. Moody. Don't you? Or if Christ comes back, I want to be like D.L. Moody. And I've done a number of funerals in these last several decades. And there's a big difference between doing a funeral of a believer and of a non-believer. For those of you who do not believe in Jesus Christ, for those of you who are watching on the, on the simulcast who are not born again, 
who have not recognized the Lordship of Jesus Christ, who do not recognize that you're a sinner, you have reason to be afraid. And I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm just being honest with you. But those of you who know the Lord, you have every reason to be thrilled at your death and at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, whichever comes first. Let us live our lives in the light of his return. Father, we do thank you for the encouragement of Holy Scripture and the terrifying stuff of Holy Scripture. God, I thank you, Lord, that you love us enough to give us the truth even when it hurts, even when it scares us. But we thank you, God, that we not, need not fear death if we are in Christ Jesus, that you have removed its sting. You even mock it. Death is simply the, a difficult, but simply a passage, though a difficult passage, on the way to the next life, to eternal bliss and days that will never end and total joy where we will not sweat and we will not cry and we will not grieve but we will be with each other and with you. And for that, we long for. It is our great prayer, God, that everyone who sees these truths, that you would prick them with the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would open up their souls to receive Christ and that they would long and look forward to the, to the return of Jesus Christ. Lord, make these things so. In Christ's name, amen.